The Restless Heart Podcast, Episode 11. The Early Church Fathers. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Restless Heart Podcast. My name is David. And I'm Nessa. How was Oklahoma? Oklahoma was amazing. If you didn't catch the last episode, this past weekend I was in Oklahoma, just outside of Broken Arrow. I was at Clear Creek Monastery. I was there for the Catholic Man Show Campout. And I gathered there with about 30 other guys from the Council of Man. What's the Council of Man? They're kind of like friends of the show from the Catholic Man Show. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a podcast where two guys, Adam and David, they drink manly beverages. They discuss man gear, so equipment that every man should have. And they then have a man topic where they have the most manly discussion you have ever heard. I'm sure Christ is in the center of this because you have like biblical absolutely. names, Adam and David. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nice. We joined the monks for the Liturgy of the Hours. And also we were camping and we roasted a pig over the campfire. A pig? Yep. It took about nearly 12 hours, I think. But at the end, the meat just fell off. It was absolutely incredible. It takes that long? 12 hours? If you're going to do it properly. This was a full pig. They had a special rig set up to hang it over the fire. Mm. It was very manly. And we we had a keg and they did a live recording of the show. And we had some scotch tasting. So anyway, that was my weekend. It was amazing. Very manly. How about yours? Well, it wasn't manly. It was healing. Okay, that's good. Our Lady of Mount Carmel, we had an um, event called Ghost Busting. Okay. So I know it sounds weird. <laughs> um, but because, you know, in the spirit of Halloween, um, we had Deacon Noel. Uh, that was my first time meeting him. I, like, I hear his name tossed around everywhere, um, but he's really well known for healing. Okay. And so he was talking about his experiences through his monthly healing masses that he has at Our Lady of Mount Carmel and um, how he experiences, I guess, spirits, like not so good spirits. Mm-hmm. And so he had an accomplice with him. I forgot his name. I'm so sorry. But it was, yeah, I was, I was a little scared. And we talked about like scary movies and like certain things in the Catholic Church and what we believe, I guess, in the unseen. Um, but I asked Deacon Noel to, to pray over me. Like he prayed over like I think one other girl I don't know who else but it it was it was I feel great. <laughs> I'm I'm glad that was cleansing. Although I now have a picture of you and Slimer. Uh, what? If you never watched the movie Ghostbusters? Oh, a long time ago. Okay, he's the he's the green blobby ghost. You. That's a great movie. You need to watch it again. We should have a movie night. Okay. You and your your homegirls, right? When you guys watched Pride and Prejudice. We did. We watched classy movies. Oh. Jane Austen adaptations, that sort of I thing. I Jane Austen. Pride and Prejudice is my favorite movie. Okay. Oh, wait, hey, wait. oh no, his face. Favorite movie. Oh, no, 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 no. If you're watching Pride and Prejudice, you must watch the BBC version. I've seen that one. And it's infinitely better than the American one. I, we need to remain friends, so let's, let's shift to today's topic. So today we're going to be talking about something that we've hinted at a few times and actually even talked about a little bit, the early church. Now, back in episode one, we spoke about St. Justin Martyr when we looked at worship in the early church. What did the early Christians do when they gathered? And Justin Martyr is what we call an early church father. 
So these guys were the ones who took over the ministry of the apostles. So as each of the apostles is martyred, and also as they go out spreading the word, proclaiming the gospel and founding new churches, new leaders take on their mantle, take on their, their role in guiding the church, celebrating the sacraments. These are the people that we call the early church fathers. And as I mentioned in episode one, when we were talking about St. Justin Martyr, some people seem to think that the early church is a complete unknown. But the truth is we actually do know an awful lot about the early church, about some of the people involved, what they believed, and as we saw in that episode, how they celebrated the mass. When we look into the early church, we find a church that looks very, for want of a better word, Catholic. I have this one post called Before 300, and it's a series of quotations of Christians from before the year 300. And in it, you see the things that they believed. They believe that the church is Catholic. They use that word, that there's a threefold structure of leadership of deacon, priest, and bishop, that the bishops have authority, that unity is incredibly important, that schism is just abhorred, the idea that sacred tradition is authoritative, a structure in worship, that it's liturgical, that there's apostolic succession, that the Bishop of Rome has a special place within the church, that the Eucharist is a sacrifice, that Jesus is truly present there, that baptism washes away sins, that priests have the power to forgive sins, that works have some place in our salvation, that it's not by faith alone. And also the saints. We find people saying prayers for the dead and asking the dead to pray for them. And even in those early centuries, you even find a growing devotion to Our Lady and an understanding of her as New Eve and as a perpetual virgin, as the mother of God. So David, what qualifies you to be an early church father? Well, I'm not qualified to be an early church father. I, mean, I know, you're too young. I'm far too young. This is one of the few things these days that I'm actually too young for. Um, <laughs> so unlike with, say, the doctors of the church, we have a definitive list of who is and who isn't a doctor of the church. We don't really have a similar list for who is and who isn't an early church father. But there have traditionally been four marks that qualify somebody to be an early church father. The first is antiquity. So to be an early church father, you have to have lived sometime between the time of Christ and the 8th century. This is known as the patristic era. I've used that term before. Patristic just means relating to the early church fathers. So you have to have lived way back. So the second mark is sanctity. The person has to have lived a holy life. And the easiest way of knowing whether someone lived a holy life is, do they have the name Saint stuck in front of their name? So for example, Saint Irenaeus. He clearly lived a life of sanctity. Or like Mother Teresa. Yes, Mother Teresa, she fulfills the criterion of sanctity, but what doesn't she fulfill? She wasn't born way back when. Yeah, she doesn't fulfill the criteria of antiquity. The next mark is orthodoxy. So you can't be an early church father and a heretic. So remember in the last episode we were talking about Arius, the guy that claimed that Jesus wasn't truly God, that there was a time when the son was not? Yeah, that bully. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, well, he's a heretic, so he doesn't count as an early church father. Now, there actually are some figures who are a little dicey on this. I'm thinking of Tertullian and Origen. These guys typically aren't referred to as being early church fathers because of various questionable points of orthodoxy. So the term that's often used is ecclesiastical writer. And the final mark is recognition. Was this person typically regarded at and referred to as a father of the church? 
So that was antiquity, born a long time ago. Sanctity, they lived a holy life. Orthodoxy, they believed what the church taught. And finally, recognition by the church. If you fulfill all of those marks, you're an early church father. So my next question is, how many fathers are there total? Like I said, there isn't a hard and fast list, but given that set of criteria, I'd say there are about a hundred. And they're truly Catholic. You'll find them from all different parts of the world, France, Palestine, Africa. Some of them will speak Latin, others Greek, others Syriac. So these are different Catholic rites in the church? The concept of rite is a little blurry in this early stage of the church, but they were from throughout the empire. Okay. So let's just talk about a few early church fathers so we can get a sense of who we're talking about here. And specifically, we're going to be looking at some of the apostolic fathers, those from the very earliest centuries of the church. They were still living in approximately the apostolic era. The first guy is St. Clement of Rome. Now, he was one of the successors to St. Peter. So when you say that, that means a successor as in a pope? Yeah, he was Bishop of Rome. And at the end of the first century, he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. Remember at Mass, you hear St. Paul's letters to the Corinthians? It's the same church. And if you listen at Mass, you'll often hear that St. Paul is telling these guys off because they're doing terribly. Well, it turns out that after St. Paul died, things didn't get much better. So what had happened is some of the young upstarts had kicked out some of their clergy members. And the Corinthian church wrote to Rome asking them to speak to the issue. And what's quite incredible here is This is in about 96 AD, probably earlier. And so at this point, St. John the Apostle is still alive. But yet rather than writing to him, the church in Corinth writes to Rome, speaking a little bit to the importance of the role of the Bishop of Rome. And Clement writes back this gorgeous letter. You know 1 Corinthians 13. It's the reading people often have at their weddings. Love is patient, love is kind. Clement draws on that idea and exhorts the Corinthians to love one another. And he also draws from all of the examples in the Old Testament where God set up structure and authority and people who rebelled against it came to bad ends. So he goes through this catalogue of examples and encourages the Corinthians to be obedient, to be obedient to the God-given authority that was placed over them. That's mind-blowing. Everyone uses it for weddings for your significant other and then it's specifically meant for... A mass of people. Well, I actually have issues with 1 Corinthians 13 being read at a wedding anyway, because it's not talking about romantic love. It's not talking about eros. It's talking about agape, Mm -hmm. self-sacrificial love, which can obviously be applied to a wedding. But I often think that when it's being read, some people think of love is patient and it's kind and it keeps no record of wrongs. (laughs) No, it's it's a much more substantial kind of love, a deeper, stronger kind. I was told in a Bible study many, many years ago that if you want to know if you are loving someone or someone's loving you, you replace the word love with their name. I've heard a similar thing, but it was if you're going to confession and you don't think you've got anything to confess, swap your name. Oh. David is patient. David is kind. David keeps no record of wrongs. Oh. oh. Yeah, seems perfectly fine to me. Um. <laughs> but one last thing about Clement's letter before we move on. We know that his letter was well-received because a subsequent bishop of Corinth, a guy called, I think, Dionysius, he records that they would read Clement's letter when they would celebrate the Eucharist because this was at a time in the church's history when the canon hadn't been fully solidified. 
They hadn't fully decided what was going to be in the Bible, what they were going to read when they went to Mass. So there, there were some of these other works, and Clement's letter was one of them. Do you have the letter? Oh yeah, it's freely available. You can look at it on the internet. Actually, let me look up the passage on love. Here we go. So this is Clement, but you can almost hear the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 at the background of this. Love unites us to God. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love bears all things, is long-suffering in all things. There is nothing base, nothing arrogant in love. Love admits of no schisms. Love gives no rise to seditions. Love does all things in harmony. Without love, nothing is well-pleasing to God. On account of love, he bore us. Jesus Christ our Lord gave his blood for us by the will of God, his flesh for our flesh, and his soul for our souls. That's a truncated version, but you get the idea. That's totally him. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So moving on from Clement, my favorite church father is St. Ignatius of Antioch. At the beginning of the second century, about the year 107 AD, he was Bishop of Antioch. Now he was actually also a successor to St. Peter, because St. Peter was Bishop there before he was Bishop of Rome. So St. Ignatius is captured and he's taken in chains to Rome. He's going to be thrown to wild beasts in the circus. For what? For the crime of being Christian. Christianity was a religion illicita. It was it. an illicit religion. If you were a Christian, that was punishable by death. Wait, so like someone just saw him, what, reading the Bible, preaching it to somebody, what? He was known to be a Christian. And back in this period of time, you could inform on other people. So Ignatius is being taken to Rome. And as he's going, he's meeting with the different Christian communities as he's being taken away in chains. And he's also writing letters. He actually writes seven in total. He writes one to a fellow bishop, a guy we're going to talk about briefly in a moment called Polycarp. And he writes the rest to other churches that he's passing by. And he also writes one to the Church of Rome, which is beautiful, because Ignatius is afraid that there are some high-up Christians in Rome that may be able to get his sentence changed. And he writes to them, pleading with them not to interfere. He tells them, don't show an unseasonable kindness to me. Don't show love for my body while that there is an altar present. And he has this line, allow me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. He's seeing his martyrdom as an imitation of Christ. And he's also seeing it in Eucharistic terms. So for years, Ignatius would have celebrated the, the liturgy, celebrated the Eucharist. And now he's living it. He says, let the wild beasts come. Let their teeth grind my bones and become a pure loaf for Christ. So heroic. But he saw the Eucharist as a sacrifice, and he therefore saw his martyrdom as a sacrifice. Now, I mentioned one of the people that he wrote to was a guy called Polycarp. Polycarp was a young bishop when he met Ignatius. And we have a couple of documents that relate to Polycarp that still survive. One is an epistle he wrote to the Philippians. We have an epistle that St. Paul wrote to the Philippians. Polycarp writes to them as well. And we also have an account of Polycarp's martyrdom. And this was really one of the very early martyrdom accounts that became phenomenally popular in the early church. And it describes the process of his capture, his interrogation by the authorities, and ultimately his execution. And we see so many beautiful things in Polycarp's martyrdom. Even the author points out all of the similarities between Polycarp's death and Jesus's death. The governor tells him to say that Caesar is Lord, 
in Greek, Kaiser Kurios. Mm. And Polycarp wouldn't do it because who is Lord? Iesus Kurios. Jesus is Lord. The governor tells him, revile Christ. And he says, 86 years have I served him and he never did me any wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And like Ignatius, he also saw his martyrdom as a Eucharist. And we hear the prayer that he prays when he's tied to this pyre and he's about to be set alight. And if you read it, it would just sound like a Eucharistic prayer, speaking of his total offering to God as this pure sacrifice. And when they actually lit the fire, the bystanders said that it didn't smell of burning flesh, but of baking bread. And Polycarp dies. He's actually ultimately stabbed. And the Jews who are present tell the governor to completely destroy the body for fear that these foolish Christians will start worshipping this guy instead. Because that's what happened with Christ. And the author of the martyrdom account has this beautiful response. And I think what this really communicates is how Catholics understand the saints. Here's what it says in the martyrdom account. They did not realise that we could never abandon Christ he who suffered for our salvation, the blameless one for sinners, or worship any other. Him we worship as being son of God. The martyrs we love as being disciples and imitators of the Lord, and deservedly so, because of their unsurpassable devotion to their king and teacher. May it be our good fortune too to be their companions and fellow disciples. Isn't that a great explanation of why we love the saints? Now, they didn't actually succeed in completely destroying his body. They did manage to collect some of his bones. And the author of the account says that these were more precious than jewels or purified gold. Well, yeah, they're sacred. Yeah. And so they, they took them and they interred them in an appropriate place. And he says that when they can, they go there and they celebrate in rapturous joy. Do you want to guess which day they do it on? Their feast day, of course. Yeah, the day of his martyrdom, the day of his birthday, his birth into eternal life. And there's this wonderful line in the account. He says that we do this both to commemorate the heroes who have gone before and to train the heroes yet to come. This is why we celebrate the saints. To commemorate them and also to train ourselves. Remember a while back you asked me why do we name churches after saints? Yeah. This is one of the reasons. This kind of reminds me of the military. Yes. Those who have gone and then... To train those who've gone, who are about to come. And, you know, we name schools, we name buildings, we name, you know, after those heroic people, you know, they're not saints, but I mean, they did something tremendous to society. Exactly. And there are other church fathers we could talk about. I'm sure we will at other points, like St. Irenaeus of Lyon. He's one of my favorites. In episode one, we spoke about St. Justin. And actually, in the previous episode, we spoke about St. Basil of Caesarea. I think of pizza every time you say his name. So, David, there's probably way more early church fathers. So where can we find more research on these guys? Well, for a start, I would say keep listening to the show because we're going to be talking about them some more. I've got a number of lecture series that I've listened to from other people, and I'll put links in the show notes. There's one by Dr. Lawrence Feingold that was my first real introduction to the church fathers. I'd also recommend Jimmy Aiken's book, The Fathers Know Best. And my all-time favorite book is by Marcelino D'Ambrosio. It's called When the Church Was Young. And finally, if you want to start reading what the Church Fathers wrote bit by bit, I'd recommend the Catena Aurea. It literally means the golden chain. 
back in the 13th century, preaching wasn't very good at mass. Thankfully, we've obviously completely mm -hmm. solved that problem these days. But Pope Urban IV, he commissioned St. Thomas Aquinas to write a commentary on all of the Gospels based on the writing of the early church fathers. So if people like St. Augustine mentioned a passage in one of their letters, that commentary is included. If St. John Chrysostom was preaching on a particular passage of Mark, that's also included. Sounds like Facebook. One person replies and another person, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing a commentary. And so you can get apps for the Catena Aurea. I'll put a couple of links in the show notes again. But I would suggest, in preparation for the Sunday Mass, go and look up and see what the early church fathers said about the passage you're about to hear. Particularly St. John Chrysostom and St. Augustine and Jerome. You will find some real gold there. So David, with these early church fathers, I have a feeling none of these guys dated. Many of them were celibate. However, not all were. I mentioned, I mentioned Tertullian earlier. He's technically not an early church father, but he's known as an ecclesiastical writer. And he actually wrote a letter to his wife. Listen to this. Oh, I will. How beautiful, then, the marriage of two Christians, two who are one in hope, one in desire, one in the way of life they follow, one in the religion they practice. They are as brother and sister, both servants of the same master. Nothing divides them, either in flesh or in spirit. They are, in very truth, two in one flesh. And where there is but one flesh, there is also one spirit. They pray together, they worship together, they fast together, instructing one another, encouraging one another, and strengthening one another. Side by side, they face difficulties and persecution. They share their consolations. They have no secrets from one another. They never shun one another's company. They never bring sorrow to each other's hearts. Psalms and hymns they sing to one another. Hearing this, and seeing this, Christ rejoices. To such as these he gives his peace. Where there are two together, there also he is present. And where he is, there evil is not. Mm, that's beautiful. Like I said, Tertullian was married. He was actually a lawyer. Wait, what? A lawyer wrote this? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah, lawyers have hearts too. <laughs> but this next quotation is from a celibate, from definitely one of my favorite theologians of the early church, St. John Chrysostom. This guy was celibate, but listen to this. An intelligent, discreet, and pious young woman is worth more than all the money in the world. Tell her that you love her more than your own life, because this present life is nothing, and your only hope is that the two of you pass through this life in such a way that, in the world to come, you will be united in perfect love. St. John was known as Chrysostom, literally means golden mouth. And I think you can see why. Yeah, he'd do really great with Hallmark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if he hadn't have chosen a life of celibacy, I don't think it would have been difficult for him to find a wife. <laughs> so that was our little introduction to the early church fathers. Blessed John Henry Newman, an Anglican convert, he said, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And I think you can see from this the apologetic value of the early church fathers when you look into history and you see a very Catholic church. But I would encourage people as they read the fathers, don't just view them as apologetics material. See them as examples to follow. Look at the gentleness with which St. Clement rebukes the Corinthians. Look at the fire of St. Ignatius seeking nothing but Christ. And look at the quality of St. Polycarp, who sees his very life as a Eucharistic offering to God. 
We read these people because we want to honour them. We want to be inspired by them because we are going to be the saints of the 21st century. And so with that, what are you up to this week? This week I have to decide between which Halloween party I'm going to this Saturday. Oh, it's so tough being popular. Well, St. Michael's is having one. Um, St. Michael's in Poway, they have their, yes, their annual Halloween party. I went last year and it was a lot of fun. And then uh, one of my cousins is throwing a Halloween party. So I might go to that one and just swing by St. Michael's. Do you have a costume prepared? I, I have several. Come on now. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I have nothing. I'm going to have to pull something together. It's Do you want me to help you? I'm a little afraid. I'm a little afraid. No, no, no. Don't be afraid. Be I not want, afraid. I want to spend no money and <laughs> do as little work as possible. I can work with that. Okay. Right, we'll, work, we'll work out something then. All right. What are you up to this weekend? Uh, not a huge amount. I actually have a little quiet weekend, which after this last weekend of excitement and manliness, I'm actually rather looking forward to. Do the sign off? Yes. Okay. As always, everyone, please share, like, subscribe, iTunes, Google Play. You know the drill. Show us some love. Contact us on the website, restlesspilgrim.net, or Twitter at David Anessa. You made us for yourself, O oh Lord. And our hearts will wander restless until we rest in you. All you holy angels and saints, pray for us. <laughs>